0: Hello. Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We are now in October. Um, Today we have a pretty great episode. Uh, You know, We recorded the conversation before um, we did this part. Sometimes we do things out of order on the show, but um, we have a conversation about what's happening in Iran. I don't know. I I actually really enjoyed it. Tammy, tell us a little bit about who we spoke to.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. Um, Kiana Karimi is a friend of the pod. She is a grad student and a writer and activist. And She's been in exile out of Iran for some time, but is still really closely tied into what's going on there. So she take, takes us through the whole thing, which I didn't, you know, I kind of like had just read the news reports, but I felt like it helped so much.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that I like with many stories internationally, like there's like this, uh, you kind of know what's happening like in pieces and fragments. And then you like, if exactly. if you are like that, I think this will help tie a lot of it together. And so I hope you'll listen to that part of the show it's about fifty minutes long, and um, we're going to try and get to it as quickly as possible. Tammy, how are you doing? You're the i'm looking at the background it, it seems like like there's something going on with your wall it looks like it's sweating or something like that
1: it's like that weird korean wallpaper but remember last week when i was facing the curtains and they were so oh, ugly so i turned you're my desk still around. in
0: your thing okay yeah I, this is not an improvement by the way <laughs> I know,
1: it looks really <laughs> depressing
0: <laughs> the wall looks terrible
1: i know, i have to figure out a better background it literally
0: looks like it's sweating like you're like you're in the jungle or something and that the, and is. that like you know there's so much humidity it's behind so you that the ugly, wall. That the wallpaper know. is peeling. peeling
1: the decor it. of this place is horrifying. I don't. There's no good
0: wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh. Okay. I don't know. I don't actually don't know what you mean by that Korean wallpaper. It's like, is that like a traditional? Or is that like? No, a, it's
1: not. But so you know, like a lot of Korean places are like wallpapered.
0: Yeah, I know that. Yeah.
1: yeah but it, it and it's like kind of related to the history of like Korean construction but anyway so this place has this kind of like really thick Korean wallpaper
0: Oh yeah okay I it. know what you're yeah. talking just about like, then. Like Yeah just like like I
1: wish it was just the painted wall but it has this kind of gross
0: anyway Yeah yeah wallpaper <laughs> is a real investment you know
1: Apparently it's really popular right now in America
0: Yeah I know I've thought about yeah. it myself but like <laughs> The issue with wallpaper is that the second that you put it up, then you begin to have to maintain it, right? Like you have like one day and then afterwards it's old wallpaper. (laughs) Like I think the the new wallpaper lasts about a day and then stuff starts peeling off. I know. Or your child throws something at the wall and it like, you know, like rips it in a certain particular place. (laughs) It's it's like a little bit annoying. I have a similar thing because my car has a wallpaper, a type of wallpaper around it. Um, Right? yeah, I have this van and the van is like wrapped in vinyl. It looks awesome. But Wait. I will say, <laughs> yeah, it's this vinyl wrapped van. It's like kind of like this army matte green.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: I, mean, I, I just had to expect, It looks fucking awesome. You, you mean know? the
1: paint, the outside paint?
0: No, the, the ex- entire exterior of the car is yeah. wrapped in this like matte vinyl. And it's fucking cool. But the problem is that every time someone smashes their door against a car or something like that, the the vinyl gets like a little like it gets little like chips in it and stuff, you know, and it's like uh, and then I also don't know how to wash it. So I never wash the
1: car. Wait, so on top of so like some cars instead of a paint layer have a vinyl. No, it has
0: a paint layer, but it has a vinyl wrap on top of it. Crazy. That's like this matte green color. It's so cool. I I can't. It's by far the coolest thing that I have. Everywhere I drive, people ask me about it. You know, not not like you know, not like women, mind you. You know, but <laughs> like, like the men who are around, like between the ages of like thirty nine and fifty nine. I know the age group. <laughs> they ask me about my car all the time. You know, anywhere, like so, if I go play tennis or something like that, people in the parking lot of like the tennis place will be like, "Whoa, bro! <laughs> like, what's going on with that van?" <laughs>
1: Wait, but this isn't like a camper van. This is just like it a is normal a van. van. Okay, this yeah, is your camper yeah. van. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's a vital wrapped camper van. Crazy. It's sweet. Uh, but um, I will say that it's the same problem as wallpaper, you know, where I'm just like, fuck, I have to maintain this thing. But much like wallpaper, sometimes I step back and I'm like, that thing looks amazing. You know, <laughs> But then you start worrying about it. You're like, when's it going to start delaminating and all this sort of stuff? I don't know. If you are an expert in vinyl wraps, please write in the show and give me some (laughs) maintenance tips because, you know, I do worry about it quite a bit. All right. So um, I don't know. I thought I I wanted to talk about one thing before we get into this other conversation, which is that like there is this new intersection now that has happened this week between feminism and poker. And I think that... (laughs)
1: <laughs> very on theme
0: yeah <laughs> um how did you watch this video you've been seeing at least tweets about yeah, it? yeah
1: i just saw the twitter activity around it. it's like a woman is accused of cheating
0: right 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 yeah um it's been it's the biggest controversy in poker in years you know wow. like, i can't remember anything close to this and it's just this like I don't know. I don't know how much backstory to give, but there's this like stream that goes on every uh, day basically from the Hustler Casino in LA. Okay. And, uh, you know, there was a woman there who is dating, I believe, Jake Paul's boxing manager who was also sitting at the table. And there's this guy named Garrett who is, I think, by all accounts, like the best no limit cash game player in the world. I mean, he's like a monster oh, at poker. Wow, he's very okay. good. And Garrett generally is a very polite and nice person. And that's also part of his. Reputation. He's like a little bit like intense, but like he's never going to yell at anyone. He's not one of these people like Phil Helmuth or whatever that like make their brand acting like an asshole. You know, okay. there was some woman beat him in a hand where the, her play was totally confounding and didn't make any sense. Like mm. she basically called him with like Jack High, which is like was like given the way that the hand played out was actually impossible for her to Weird. have done that, right? Okay. You, but it ended up being the winning hand because he was, he ended up with like eight high, but that was just cause he had this huge draw, the draw missed um, and he plays very aggressively. And so basically from that moment, he like said, you're cheating, you know? And um, he gave her like this death look, right? Wow. And th- this is all the stuff that's on tell on like uh-huh, whatever, the video on stream cuts. that people yeah. are like watching on social media and he is not acting like I will say he did not like cover himself in glory here, right? He is acting like a real dick. Wow. And afterwards, um, they sort of see like I, it's hard to tell who is right and who's wrong, but they apparently had like a meeting um, and he sort of told her millions of people are going to see what you did. And she says that she felt intimidated by that. And so she gave him the money back from that pot, oh, which is sure. like for a lot of people was like. The evidence that she had cheated, right? But in the end, it's been interesting to see how the response has been now that it's outside of poker, right? Like within the poker world, people are very split. Like, you know, I personally don't think she cheated, even though at first I kind of thought she cheated. But now I'm just like, that, that just how would her... she
1: cheat though? What would that mean?
0: Well, there's many theories about this, and like they've, like, so. All the for something to work on television, you need to know what the player's cards are. And so mm-hmm. all the cards have these little chips in them called RFID chips. Oh yeah. And so anyone who has information about that can relay it to one of the players, you know, but there's like literally one or two people. And so you have to believe that they're in on it, right? I see. And the way that they can relay it is that there used there was this like poker controversy a little while ago where this guy like was staring down at his phone the whole time. And he was cheating, right? And someone was like just texting him what the other people had. And he was like sitting there with his head down. And so, like, but she's not staring down at any screens. Like, one of the jokes is just like, where would she hide a screen? Because she's like, very, she's wearing very tight fitting clothes and like, you know, and everything like this. Like, you know, like this woman is like, she looks like sort of like an Instagram model. Yeah, Yeah. And, uh i think that also plays into it too right. which is just that her. like you know like just showing a lot of cleavage and like it's the like, stuff that's coming out and people are yeah. just like oh of course she's cheating the misogyny no. was <laughs> ready right. to go I
2: like- <laughs> and, and
0: I, it might be shocking for you to hear but misogyny in the poker world is like a real fucking.
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like picture the most like pig-headed men that you can imagine just like you know every but every fact every sort of sector of rich dickheads you know and so like in la at the high stakes games like you'll have like korean rich dickheads you know (laughs) armenian rich dickheads white rich dickheads you You just have them all together and they're just like all just like the thing they share is like Really deep misogyny. <laughs> that thing, that's a high stakes poker world in a yeah. lot of ways.
1: Cash and deep misogyny. Right,
0: right, right. <laughs> like, Cash businesses and like deep misogyny the and worst gambling room you gambling. Could possibly visit. No, it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. And so then you have like it's getting slightly better, but not really, you know. And so to to have that be the backdrop, right. And then yeah. the other force in this being like the new form of poker player, which is like kind of very data driven. But also mm-hmm. like deep, you know, like, you know, you can imagine like these poker nerds, you know, just being mm-hmm. like, well, you know, on this turn, <laughs> she should have like the the, <laughs> unders- the actual like. Pr- like reasonable range she could have put him on just like she's not thinking about that stuff. (laughs) Come on. You just call her the dumbest person ever. And you are like, like, Yeah, and now you're mad that she's like not calculating her pot odds and like, you know, putting Garrett on like a whatever, like a reasonable range from his position. Like and like calculating like her blockers with the jack of clubs She's like you just said that she's the dumbest person that that's ever sat at a <laughs> poker player of course at a table it's either one or the two you know you can't <laughs> expect her to do that anyway it's been very it's been very fascinating so, like, how because,
1: often does a guy like garrett sit at a table with a woman
0: oh uh more more now than before okay. you know um interestingly enough in those stakes a lot of the women who play are asian you know, um, and uh, some of them are just rich, you know, um, people and then some of them are, are players who have decided that this is for whatever reason that this is their way of making money. And, um, Hmm. you know, I think that like, basically, some of the Asian women are less of targets, because I don't know why, honestly, but like, it's not like this, right, where you have somebody who looks like an Instagram model. Yeah, who is playing like, I think it's almost like there's like some form of racism, almost like, oh, of course, the Asian women are smart or something like that. Oh, the math. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It might be like a math thing or it might just be Uh that like Asian people at poker tables are so ubiquitous that maybe it almost doesn't even matter because like.
1: So to get at a high stakes table like that, you don't even have to be that good at poker. You just need a lot of money. You just
0: have to be rich. And in fact, it's like, I think that she's like, she's getting money from somewhere right? And that's what some of the theorizing has been about. It has been interesting to see, like, you know, this thing has, like, become, it's the first time where, like, the poker world is, like, has become like, part of, like, the larger cultural conversation, and that's Mm -hmm. the part that's the most funny to me. I see. Like, there are all these feminist responses, and in my, like, My poker friends are all, like, you know, being like, "Did you see the feminist response?" And like, they almost feel happy about it because their tiny little world has like penetrated the larger, like like ongoing, like moment moment of poker. (laughs) 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 But I don't know. It's weird. It's like a whole week of cheating controversies. Did you see the? um, Did you see the fishing controversy? Cheating controversy. Oh man, that was really good. You should see it. Like, there's a video. Yeah, where like these dudes were like stuffing lead weights into walleyes, oh my God. And-, <laughs> and so there's this amazing video where these people are grabbing the fish and cutting them open, and they're like pulling out like wet lead weights that are like the size of like a fucking like tangerine or something. What? Like that. <laughs> yeah, like how did these dudes think they were gonna get away with this? You oh know, my God. and like apparently it's like it's worth like th- them winning was like three hundred thousand dollars or something like oh, that. Oh wow, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's been an interesting <laughs> week of like cheating in the, in, on, in, on the internet. And in, like totally
1: know. obscure sports that people usually don't pay attention yeah, to. Yeah.
0: Not to even mention the chess cheating one. You've heard of that, right? No. Oh man. That one involved, you should look it up after the show. I won't go too far into it, but it involves, uh, vibrating anal beads that one of the players was, uh, allegedly wearing to help him to alert him to what moves he <laughs> you should
1: make they were you should really read controlled
0: up on it. uh yeah oh i don't my know God. it's 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 wild Um, uh, i don't know i guess this is where we are right now right In the news. we're like a month away from the from the from the midterms and all i read about on the news <laughs> the only stories that interest me right now are, are cheating contracts i don't know what this says
1: from. about our society this is like <laughs> really funny
0: oh man okay well um yeah we we are very like we said outside of the show we're very excited to bring you this conversation that we had with kiana um i don't know have you been following the story very closely of what's happening in iran
1: i think just as much i so that i think on two points like just normally just reading global news but then i think within feminist discourse in the united states like talking to women about like how we see it and how we see like Women and other media people here interpreting it. So I think I've been processing it on those two levels.
0: What What, what does that mean? Like, what, what? Like, do you feel like there's a overreach or something like that, or that people are centering themselves too much, or? Yeah, I think a little they're bit. They're using of that. it too much of a, as a metaphor for their own lives. Totally. Like,
1: yeah. 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 I think it's a little bit of this western kind of triumphalism around like the tearing off of the hijab moment right right. and then worries about that and also for people in media like how do we cover stuff like on its own terms when it takes place outside of the country and we're not just like oh this is like analogized to this particular kind of feminism here or you know protest movement here um or also this problem which i think kiana is really thoughtful about of like do you only, if you're only like interviewing people who are in exile living outside of the country, like what sorts of perspectives are you getting on what's happening inside the country?
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. And that, yeah, that is interesting because in some ways it's almost like a right wing story, right? Exactly. That's right. the worry. That it's like, hey, they're pulling off the oppressive, uh, implements of Islam Islam is <laughs> exactly. bad, you know? And like, but I don't know, I guess I haven't seen very much of that, you know? But I also, I don't know. Yeah. I stopped my, I used to like put Tucker Carlson on my DVR thing <laughs> and I would just watch his opening monologue and I stopped doing that. And so I don't know if he's been talking about <laughs> this or not, you know? Um, yeah, Yeah, that was, I don't know. I would recommend not for people to not do that you know, I always felt like it was necessary because I was like I have to know. But every time he says something wild, it's always on Twitter anyway. You know, um, but it was interesting. <laughs> so you're just saving
1: yourself the heartache now.
0: Well, it's just it was interesting to watch the daily building of a audience. You know what I mean? Like sort of like what is in daily maintenance of this guy towards his audience, right? Like you know, there's obviously something happening there that's working. Yeah. Right. Um, Okay, well, let's 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 do our conversation with
2: Kiana. To write about death is not easy. But like most Iranians, I've been living with the dead. With an unfailing stream of new faces and names as early as I can remember. Most of us, post-revolution wartime children, first learned what killing is, what death looks like, and how it is spoken about. Then we figured out for ourselves what life is. The first mark of the Islamic Republic was that it made death no news, since it was always in the news. That was supposed to normalize death, to make it look just, legitimate, because Islam says so. Or the enemy finds a way in if you don't do so. But the normalization never happened. For 43 years, one of our biggest collective achievements has been to adapt to what the government made normal without ever getting used to it, without ever accepting it. We kept reminding ourselves in our movies and novels and poems that our normal is horrifically mad and unusual. And we kept condemning the government's act of murder, even if it led to more murders, to hundreds of them, and at times thousands. Now there is a new death, and yet again Iran is ignited. I need to put in words what I think that death states, even if it only becomes useful to start a debate. Mahsa Amini or Jina Amini is the first known martyr of compulsory hijab in Iran, I'm really excited
1: today to have a guest, Kiana Karimi, to talk with us about what's been going on in Iran. Um, You guys have probably seen that a few weeks ago, the morality police in Iran picked up a woman for um, not properly wearing hijab, and that has launched a wave of protests. Um, So very much in keeping with some of the themes of this show, and especially given some of the rising tides of authoritarianism we're seeing um, with the unresolved election in Brazil, Italy, et cetera, we thought it'd be good to have someone with some knowledge of Iranian protest movements, why people are in the streets, what they're hoping to accomplish. Um, Kiana is a friend of the podcast, a PhD candidate in performance studies at NYU, whose dissertation focuses on the micropolitics of everyday life and the performance of gender in Iran, and she is currently living in Mexico. Welcome, Kiana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jay's here too, of course. Hey, Jay. Hello. (laughs) Hey, Jay. Hi.
0: Um,
1: So, Kiana, maybe say a little bit about yourself first. So um, you haven't lived in Iran for some years, but obviously you are from there. Um, How did you end up in first the United States and then in Mexico? And what kind of work were you doing in Iran before you left?
2: So I moved from from Iran to uh, America in 2005. Uh, Before moving, I had just finished my undergrad degree in electrical engineering. My understanding was that as soon as I move, I'm going to get a job and then I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do for my master's program, uh, for my future job. Um, I was very interested in art, so I thought I'm going to go to art school. I had like a long list of dreams and ideas and projects to do. But what happened changed all of that. Um, I ended up being in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, solely because my sister lived there and I had to be in a place that I would have a financial sponsor. Um, I started looking for a job as an engineer. uh, I thought I could at least land an internship program. And for like three months, I think I applied for about, I don't know, 100, 150 different positions none of them even wanted to speak with me. And that was strange. I was like, this is odd. Something's going on here. And then finally, this gentleman, thanks to him, he told me, why don't you come for an interview? And I went there and we started talking and he said, well, yeah, you definitely know a few things about control system design and you would fit what we do here. But there is a problem. We are... In a war with Iraq, so how am I gonna hire you? And I, yeah, had, no. to, like, <laughs> and I had to tell him that's that's Iraq, uh, and I'm from <laughs> Iran, and these are two different countries. And he was like, "Oh, but you know, uh, the, the second problem with me that I can see you're very smart, but like, how am I gonna tell other people that we have an engineer, a female engineer from Iran?" And he was a, like a genuinely honest man. And I really appreciated that because this was really the thing that was going on in everyone else had, but he didn't tell me. Right. Um, by the end of the interview, it became clear to me that because I'm from Iran and because I'm a woman, before getting into any conversation about control system design, I have to do a review of the politics of the region and I have to explain that It's not that I've just got off of a camel and I'm an educated woman and I'm a middle class (laughs) background. And I've, I've seen like Godard movie, believe me. And I've (laughs) That's the criterion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, for a while I became like a name dropper just because I felt it was the best defense mechanism because everybody had this urge to tell me what like a modern society looks like. And everybody was pitting me. And I, and I would pity them back because I was like, God, where did you grow up? You don't know anything about this world. So there was this mutual uh, putting down and there was no chance for any conversation. But yeah, I, I over the years, I've tried different methods to stop people from uh, thinking <laughs> what they should be thinking about me. Anyway, uh, after that, I started working in a restaurant uh, and gradually, I built um, a little, a little life for myself. Really, I became a graphic designer and then a web designer, and I started a company. Throughout all of it, my goal was to get back to school, but for a number of um, financial reasons, and um, Tammy might know about the immigration status of many families, it never became possible for like the first ten years of my after I moved to US. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was also a women's rights activist. uh, And then at some point, this technical digital security thing uh, connected with my activism. And I got into this position of doing a number of projects, particularly for like digital security for activists and journalists Mm, inside Iran. Um, But I, I didn't like any of it. I mean, I ended up doing a lot of things about about women movement only because I saw it necessary and only because I was often the only person in the room who could do it. Um, My heart was somewhere else. Uh, After many years, I was finally, and I won't go to detail, but I was finally able to get into the master's program and then the PhD program at NYU. Uh, So yeah, that was sort of a turning point. I felt, okay, I finally have enough of... um, I felt I was allowed to live for myself for a while after years of having to just be in a position that I, I called it surviving. Like yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't flourishing, I wasn't growing, I was just surviving. And a number of, uh, I mean, part of the reason was that we had a lot of family issues as well, just like any other Yeah, uh, family sure. family. You can call me anytime you want, by the way, because this <laughs> would go on and on. Okay, uh, well... I mean, maybe we can,
1: I'll just interject for a second to ask. So you, I know you have been supporting um, feminists, feminist movement work um, in Iran, but also doing some organizing in New York City and elsewhere for folks who are living in exile or diasporic members. Um, As you're watching what's going on right now in Iran, tell us a little bit about this. So um, the woman who seems to have been killed in custody after being taken in by the morality police, Masa Amini. um, Mm -hmm. She has been called something of maybe like a feminist martyr. Um, she's a Kurdish woman in Iran, yeah. and it's been raising all sorts of questions, not just around narrowly this issue of like covering or you know obedience to the regime, but also what it means for the regime to regulate people's bodies and you know the status of women there generally. Um, how do you see this like in the context of different feminisms you've seen in Iran to date?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, I think the best way to go about a question like this is um, t- is to ask every single woman because hijab is such a personal thing and forcing it really affects the personal life and the mental life of a person. So mm-hmm. I feel this is one of those topics that theory cannot handle. It takes multitudes of accounts. But I can tell you my account and my account has been the fact that, well, I've lived most of my life with forced hijab. Until I was 13, uh, because I hadn't pierced my ear, I would cut my hair very, very short, and I had this boy's name, so I could Mm -hmm. go on the street uh, without the hijab. But at some point, it became very obvious that I'm a woman, and I would get (laughs) eye-rolling on the street, so I started wearing (laughs) wearing the hijab. Uh, I think the government does it for a reason, and it's a mistake to think of it as some sort of Islamic measure. I see it as a completely political and calculated strategy to build um, a certain idea of a Muslim society, which what is Ayatollah Khamenei has been trying to do since he became mm-hmm. the supreme leader of Iran. Um, this idea works, at asking me, only because there are so many disillusioned activists around the world who do want to see change in their countries, but they believe that West is not the solution. So they look for an, for a solution outside West. And this is the moment that the Islamic Republic really throws itself as the possible solution. And I think in all of it, a uh, women's bodies and hijab has a very, very important role in the in the sense that to make a very strong contrast between the West. Iranian government has decided to use women in this in the way that we've seen all these years, covered mm-hmm. in black chador, tip to toe, and that's supposed to be a sign of difference. It's, it's supposed to be a sign of authenticity, uh, a sign that this is a true uh, utopian society. And look at all these women; they really love what they're doing, and it is possible to have a modern, um, and active, and dynamic, and growing um, Islamic. Really, Utopia. I want to keep repeating this name because this is the name that has been repeated to me when I was growing up. Uh, so did, it is out of a, asking me out of a political, very, very calculated political decision. And it actually works uh, from my conversation with different people around the world. There are fans, like diehard fans of the Islamic Republic outside Iran. Once they uh, step in, I don't think they would continue their fandom, but who cares? Uh, the government itself doesn't care. Yeah, it also has a, a like domestic function, of course. And Tammy, please uh, interrupt me again because I'm going to go on and Oh, on yeah, this, well, this I yeah, one yeah. of the
0: questions that I had was that, you know, in, in your writing, um one of the things that you emphasize, I think that's related to this, is this distinction between forced hijab and elective hijab, right? And you write quite eloquently about it in this, paper that you shared with us which is that like uh you write forced hijab facilitates a lot more I repeat forced because elective hijab is a choice a very personal one and a sign of autonomy over one's body but compulsory hijab belongs altogether to a different domain every woman who has dealt with it has a story and interpretation and with millions of women having to live with it the only way to understand its impact is to listen to multitudes of accounts um yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about that like the difference between elective and forced job why you feel like it is so important to have that be like the foregrounding of any type of conversation that's going to follow about what's happening right now?
2: Yeah. Well, first, Jay, I'm going to ask you to read the whole essay because your voice is much better than mine.
0: So (laughs) we're recording
2: your voice of the essay and I'm going to market it that way. Um, Yeah, I think it's very important. And I think it's very important in the context that we are. Uh, As an immigrant, as a person who lives in diaspora, I've been living every day with a very with two very different narratives of hijab. One narrative is what happens in Iran, which is a compulsory law, basically, something that you must do regardless of what you think and what you feel and who you are, what your ideology is. The other narrative is actually when the hijab is a choice for, say, an Egyptian woman who lives in Amsterdam or lives in Paris. And again, there is this tension around this choice of clothing because... Although there is this conversation, there is this idea that well, France and the West is very liberal and everything is allowed. Somehow, when that liberation is about the ideology of the other, it became it becomes very uncomfortable in allowing what what other forms of what are, what other understandings of freedom or clothing or whatever it can look like. So, I. I honestly feel like a schizophrenic when I want to talk about hijab or anything else that comes about the clash between the East and West. Because as soon as I defend hijab, then I have to respond to all the people who are in Iran and I have to live with it. And then as soon as I okay. criticize it, I have to caption myself that, well, by the way, this criticize, this criticism doesn't mean that a woman in the West, in New York, should also be harassed for having a scarf. It, Honestly, I think the the conversation should have been much easier. The fact is that each of us choose our clothing based on a very, very complex and layered history where we come from. And somehow chador or scarf has become something separate, as if everything else that we wear and put on is neutral. And there's this (laughs) one political, one ideological piece of clothing that is a scarf, which is not the thing at all. That's not at all the case. And this idea that liberation happens by taking off the scarf, I mean, to me, that's as absurd as going on a street and telling someone, uh, hey, excuse me, if you take off your pants right now, you're going (laughs) to feel much better. You're going to feel so liberated. I mean, these clothings take their meaning from the history that they come from. So by putting them on or taking them off just just because it means something to someone else, nothing really happens. I really think liberation does have to do with our clothing, but it's a choice that comes from within. Mm -hmm. And I get sad when I see a Muslim woman cannot make that choice easily in the West, as much as I get sad when I see an Iranian woman cannot make her choice in her own country. It's like very dialectic. I have to say something, and as soon as I say it, I have to say the opposite of it, because the other people are suffering exactly (laughs) in the opposite way anyway. Well, and that's what no, I mean. It seems very, yeah,
0: that, yeah, seems that right. makes Sorry, sense to, to me. Yeah.
2: And I think like you and
1: a couple other feminists commenting on what's been happening right now are also mentioning like the regulation of of scarves in France, which is like the opposite, right? Which yeah. is sort of like this, but the same kind of principle of control and regulation. Um, yeah. I guess one of my underlying questions though, over these weeks is, are the protests right now about the scarf? I mean, you know, to what extent Of course, that was like this triggering impulse, but as it's kind of evolved, like what are these protests really about and are there other political conditions that are underlying them?
2: Yeah, I think that's a very important question. So as long, I mean, as long as I remember, the moment that people gather together on the street, uh, the demands diversify and they get radicalized because they look at each other and they can demand much more. So at least in the past 15 years, whenever there's been a protest on the street Within a few days, the dominant slogan is that down with the dictator, because that's at the end of the day what people want. Mm-hmm. But I think what's special about this protest, uh, and, I, and I think lots of the media in the West are hesitant to talk about it, and that's the fact that people were enraged because a woman was killed over a symbol that is overwhelmingly associated with Islam. And those people who are enraged right now, they're actually Muslim-majority. Uh-huh. And a lot of them are conservative and actually a lot of them are conservative men. So really the framing of the story to me is that a Muslim majority country is out on the street, enraged because a woman died for a scarf. And no matter what Islam says, the way it's been used and abused under Islamic Republic of Iran is actually the invention of the government. Uh, I think this this is what really propelled people to the street, but yeah, once people are on the street, uh, the demands becomes about the economy, about education. Uh, there are a lot of conversations about why there's been so many mismanagement, while there is this uh, crippling, really crippling sanction imposed by the US. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I, I think this is also good to say that uh, because the government has been so illegal in so many ways, the fact that they're so clingy to this one law about hijab is also pissing people off. It's like, you guys are stealing and like fucking up this whole country in all these different ways. But then all of a sudden, hijab law, non negotiable. Everyone should be following <laughs> <laughs> So that's also like another layer of like absurdist. Uh, implementation of law in iran i mean there was one conversation similar to this few years ago there's been a lot of uh homeless people after the sanction because a big uh portion of the middle class families really fell under poverty line mm-hmm. only because of u.s imposed sanction which i think is re- it's really a crime against humanity yeah, but that's true. another conversation uh, one woman had made uh really is like a slum like uh um, shack for herself in the middle of nowhere and she had two kids and there was no husband in the picture and then within three days there was this movie that the the official agents had come and ruined that that really shack uh and the, their excuse was that this is not legal it's not legal to build a shack here wow. it's a specific place yeah. and people were just uh, honestly truly enraged because I mean, you can see the irony here in a country that nothing works, and all of a sudden laws become important when they can be used and as an excuse to abuse people, as harass people, really. I mean well, oh please go.
0: Oh yeah, sorry. I, I wanted to go back a little bit on what you were saying, which was that like, you know, in some of what you had discussed with Tammy before the show, I was very curious about this. You you identified two groups that um in the protests right and the first you said are sort of gen z younger people right and the second are um and the second are sort of conservative men right and that was striking to me it's something i didn't know about could you could you talk about that a little bit more like the two groups that are that are involved here as you see it
2: yeah so the the protests are really popular and you see all sorts of like different age brackets and gender and everything but uh, because it's a protest that started with hijab, the fact that on its very first day, uh, conservative Muslim men were out uh, chanting and like uh, walking alongside their wives and demanding uh, some sort of justice for Massa, that was pretty striking. It was pretty striking for all of us. And I think uh, I really feel... For us, it's like a very contrasting distinction at this moment between who is a believer and who is using Islam because it pays well these days. If mm-hmm. you use it because it pays well, you're probably on the street with some baton and a tear gas or whatever. But if you're a true believer, you would never want a woman die for a scarf. So this distinction has become so pronounced these days because you see who is defending Massa and who is, the, who is against the protest.
0: So I in these sense, and, and what about the young people? Like who who are these yeah. young people, and how are they sort of expressing themselves?
2: I mean, in a very endearing way, I would want to call them animals. <laughs> they're like these like mindless, completely <laughs> shameless. I mean, I don't know how to even start explaining them. So whatever <laughs> idea of value and moral code and value system my generation had, and I was born in eighties, that Mass is important, and we have to think about the South, uh, global South, and we have to do this, and we have to think about what uh, liberation means for women. They honestly do not give a fuck about any of this. (laughs) They just want to have a good life, have a safe life, but they also have this very clear understanding that having a safe and good life is actually a very political mission, and they're willing to pay for it. So it's a politics without the concepts that had currency only two generations ago, pretty much like people who die for those uh, concepts, and they've gone out of currency. I mean, I'm sure you can talk to them about uh, the latest uh, computer game or the latest Nike shoes, and they would know it even if they cannot afford to buy it. Uh, They're part of this global... um, Global projects of like crafting one's identity. I mean, I see a very similar kid in New York or in in Mexico City right now. The difference is that, I mean, just like kids in many other places, they do know what comfort looks like. They do know how people in other places have fun. They have a very intimate knowledge of it because they do see it every day, every single day on Instagram, and they cannot have it. And because of the sanction and because of the government, They never had a good childhood. And because of the economic prospect of the country, they cannot have a good future, or that's actually, at least that's the sentiment. So there's a lot uh, that they feel they're at stake. And uh, they're, they're very, very comfortable getting physical. They're very shameless in a very positive and healthy way because I'm full of shame and guilt in all sorts <laughs> of weird way and I've never been able to get rid of it <laughs> but they don't have it so yeah they're really cleansed and purified and they're gonna come out god knows in 20 years having their own um, like issues to go to therapy for I, I, I cannot I cannot foresee that I'm sure it's there <laughs> but for now all I see are these like brave courageous people and as of today, I'm not sure if you follow the news for today. So up until yesterday, the age bracket uh, of people who were on the street, started from like 16 or 17 kids, teenagers. Today, there was this video in an elementary school, of a bunch of girls who had taken off their scarf and they forced this male head of the school. They forced him out of the school and they were just yelling and dancing. And I'm like, I mean, sitting afar, I'm saying, just be careful. Guys, be careful! This is too much. <laughs> and obviously, they don't—they don't need me to say any of it. So yeah, they're ahead of us, much ahead of us, wow. in some ways at least.
1: So you, can a few years ago, you wrote a piece for the London Review um, around, I guess, 2017, 18, about protests that erupted. Um, Not just in Tehran, but in other parts of the country. I think those were more, seems like they were more kind of like political, economic protests, didn't necessarily have a gender dimension. Um, Of course, people also, we are all thinking about like the 2009 uprising. So there have been all these times, obviously, Mm -hmm. since 79 that people have been rising up in Iran. Um, (laughs) Do you feel different this time? I mean, like, what are your, what's your sort of analysis of of like, I guess, the prospects for this? Like, what do you You think it's going to go into?
2: So exactly because there's been a number of protests since 1979, I think just like other people, I've learned to have full discipline over hope. Like hope is something mm-hmm. that you don't allow to control you because yeah. you can get disappointed very quickly. Uh, and this time I'm doing the same thing. I stay as pessimistic as possible. But to be honest, off the record, in parenthesis, like just like, <laughs> I'm trying to bring my alter ego now, talking to you of well myself. <laughs> something is happening, and this is important. And like I, every day, you would feel that the situation is getting more critical and more of something at least that at least from afar looks like a no return uh, point. And well, so uh, there, this analyst Hossein Ghazi today was saying that. We are very, very close to this thing that Lenin once called the revolution, revolutionary window, that there's this period that if something happens, that would be the period for it. And um, Yeah, this is different. I can tell you this much. Maybe the, the debt toll would be so high within a few days that everyone goes back home. But there are signs that you would think that, that it, there's also a possibility that that would not happen. And one of the signs is that a number of high ranking military officials have come out and say, we've heard the voice of people and we're with them. And I'm, I'm not sure how known it is a distinction between SEPA and Revolutionary Guard and military. So military is like the group that is really in charge of the borders. And they're not at all involved in this daily harassment that happens inside cities. Revolutionary Guards, power, Morality po- Police, they're all a very different entity. They are armed. but They're formed around a very different uh, reason. And the, the personnel, everyone is different. And if the army says that, if the military uh, says something like that, well, first of all, it's very intimidating for any kid on the street who is throwing a tear gas because he's going to be paid $1 at the end of the day. Um, It's very heartwarming for people. And my God, if they come on the street, who can I mean, they're the most equipped group in Iran as far as military goes. And I talk about military over and over because in these moments, it's not about rhetoric anymore. I mean, The the war becomes to who has more um, hard power. Unfortunately, that, that, that becomes the defining, um, defining criteria. Uh, so yeah, Mm. off the record, I'm very helpful and on the record, I'm terribly pessimistic, nothing's going to happen. Tammy, don't even look at me that way. Well,
0: Well, I think one of the things that's not discussed very much. I mean, I've seen these videos of these school girls, uh it's very inspiring, you know, I mean, like even okay. with as an outsider who doesn't know too much about the situation, I think just anything that involves children um, engaged yeah. in this type of thing is so emotionally powerful. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what they're, you know, they are saying things like, you know, down with dictator, all this sort yeah. of stuff that is expressedly political, right? Like, it is. Yeah. Um, but my question is, like, you know, like, what, even if we, if if people are pessimistic for actual change or something happening, like what what is the what do you think at this point is sort of the large political ask? Like, what is the thing mm-hmm. that will satisfy um, these young people? Like, what would have to change to for them to feel like they had they had won?
2: Yeah, that's a very very good question. I mean, because. Very, There has been a number of different projects to bring change uh, within the country and change that you would put under the umbrella of reform, and none of those projects have worked. Uh, at this point, the consensus is that these people, these officials must go. It's impossible at this point to make any change from top to bottom, from bottom to top, from grassroots. uh from the parliament, it is impossible to make this pack of thugs and thieves and just talking mouths on, on the state TV uh, change. They're not going to change. And this is really the result of four decades of having a uh, having a government that is using ideology, maybe like Middle Ages shit, using ideology to justify whatever it does. It is, it, it's not what's the word in English? It's helpless at this point. It's unsalvageable. I don't know. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Both those work, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That is the demand on the street. I don't know what's going to happen, but that is the sentiment that these people must go. And this was actually a line from uh, Faizah Hashemi. Uh, Faizah Hashemi is the daughter of late president of Iran, uh, Mm -hmm. Jani, who was once a very, very powerful man And he had this tension with supreme leader. This is a very interesting twist in Iranian uh, political structure. So there's this supreme leader figure that should stay on top at all times. And there's Mm -hmm. this president. And every president has had this very strange relationship with the supreme leader. And at the end of the like, uh, like for the last few periods, Khamenei just decided that he would choose uh, president himself. So <laughs> we have this mm. this sort of an election thing, but it's just performance. It's nothing else but by performance at this point. Uh, I feel, I mean, quoting from Faizé, uh, uh, in her essay, she was saying that these men uh, are the type of men who are afraid from women's locks. And they know that they don't have any um, weapon or any army we can actually defeat women's locks, but the point is that if our statement are so pathetic to be afraid of women's hair, they must go. They just must go. We just don't want this type mm-hmm. of government for our government. This is the sentiment. Yeah. One of the I think
1: irony is coming at it from you know being an American is um, obviously the U.S. has. Had so many policy failures with regards to Iran, you know, in terms of backing out of the nuclear agreement, in terms of the incredible sanctions that you were mentioning that have really debilitated a lot of the population. And yet, I think the West, like a certain segment of the West right now, is in this a little bit of like a celebratory mood, like, oh, they're <laughs> dropping their hijab, right? And so, um, <laughs> can you kind of walk us through that? Like, obviously, this is not about the United States, you know, but we are responsible in terms of being a global actor and, you know, forcing these economic policies on the country. Um, how do you sort of see that? Like, obviously, you know, the sort of like fake feminism is quite clear, but um, <laughs> yeah, what's our kind of responsibility? Like, how much are the US sanctions kind of built into some of these frustrations? Um, are there particular policy changes that would help the population actually be better equipped to rise up?
2: Yeah, you know, can we just go a little bit back? Yeah, like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so honestly, America is like an old wound for most Iranians, and it's a wound that goes back to 1953, when there was this wonderful uh, national leader, Mossadegh, who actually nationalized oil in Iran, and he was overthrown by a coup that was run by USA and the uh, Brits. Uh, they, they came up with the plan to overthrow this one guy that was overly popular in Iran. Mm-hmm. Before the overthrow of Mossadegh there, there, was, I mean, when you see the magazines of the time and when you hear these intellectual trends that were dominant at the time, there was this idea that we can revamp this project of Iranian-ness in a way that would be updated for the 20th century. We are able to do it using what West has for us, using what India has. Yeah. Uh, there was this cosmopolitan sense of drafting what should the future of Iran look like. After the coup, there was so much resentment toward West altogether, which this is what happens really, yeah. <laughs> that the country was radicalized within 20 years, from 1953 to 1979, uh, toward using its most fundamental uh, ideologies as the like dominant popular doctrine. So the type of intellectuals who came to power and uh, who came uh, on the podium and became like sort of the popular figure, were the type who were anti-West and who were just, at least in their rhetorics, they were speaking of a country that would squarely define itself against the West. So, yeah, I do think that America, and I don't want to blame America for our domestic uh, problems. We would have another nasty government, probably, even if there was no America in the picture, but the fact that this nasty government is able to gain support in different places, the fact that it was radicalized and it was formed right at the moment that it, was, uh, it became clear or evident for people that West is not our friend, it's our enemy. It's impossible to look at 1979 without keeping in mind that history. And America did have yeah. a major role. In that history, so yeah, we are suffering because of America. And again, I'm not anti-America. I grew up uh, listening to Cindy Lopez and Madonna, and like I'm completely <laughs> astrophysified with this. The, is right. your dialectical footnote for
0: that. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> exactly,
2: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I was like really a kid, and I'm I still am in so many ways. But I cannot overlook the fact that every time someone says this, like Western people did this and that in Iraq, in Syria, or uh, Egypt. I don't have much to say, unfortunately. I can only say, have you seen Michael Jackson break dancing? It's actually very cool. <laughs> that's all I have to say. <laughs> and it, that's too old, actually, cliche right now. But I would come up with another line. The fact is that I'm, I'm so also fed up with the current pop culture in the U.S. I love the pop culture of 90s and 80s. I could relate to it, but this current... Can I say Kardashian shit or whatever it is right now? I just cannot stand it. Think that's one dated second. though, too. Yeah,
0: Dude, we're all born in that. Well, actually, I was born in the '70s, but like you know, listen, you're Barely preaching to the choir here. You know, <laughs> I just I just listen to rap music now. I'm just like I don't understand this.
1: Jay's you know? <laughs> entire Twitter feed, Kiana, is just like a tribute to obscure shit from the '90s. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. like,
0: what happened to the rappers from the '90s? You know, I I had um you know, one of the questions that I had about all this is that like, you know, obviously like these things are not either or, right? But, um, you know, what effect does the economic state of, you know, the sort of average person in in Iran post post sanctions, right, like how much does that feed into the size of these protests um, and the intensity of the protests, right? Like obviously when people are struggling economically Um, there's much more incentive and desperation, right? There's much more frustration. Mm -hmm. Like, can you, can you, do you think that this, I mean, I think that asking like, does this happen if like people are doing better, like assumes a country where there is like a recent history of people doing better. Right. But like this specific, the sanctions and, and just sort of the difficulties that you spoke of people being homeless, things like that. Like how much does that play into the intensity of what's happening?
2: I think it's very very important. If it's not the number one thing, it's one of the top top 3 items. I mean, uh I think it would be intellectualizing a mass uprising if we just uh try to define it by uh like a demand for freedom of speech or demand for security. The first thing is really bread. It's always the first thing is the bread and that is not uh that is not on the table. Um uh, for a lot of families in Iran, for families who had that bread only 10 years ago or five years ago. So it's not that they've used to live like that. It's just they've been fallen from one class to another. And a lot of working class are on their poverty line right now. That is very important. Uh, it's also important in the second way, in the sense that um, so a lot of activists Uh, women's right activists, uh, political activists, they could do what they did as basically a volunteer job because they were fed enough to be able to spend their afternoons uh, writing writing for a newspaper or even putting a newspaper together. Same activists in the past 10 years had to take second jobs or third jobs just to be able to feed their family. So uh, one major cost Of sanction for Iran was that civil society basically faded away because there was no human resources for it, Um, and these people were not like businessmen. I mean, uh, you know, activist type writers and poets and people who are, to begin with, are not very rich. Uh, And what I think what happens is that when there's no civil society, there's no conversation of quality that can relate the politics of the state with the freedom of the body. I mean, these things can only happen when people have time uh, and peace of mind to sit and think and talk to each other. That was completely ruined. And then, well, Instagram also came. So the criterias and the value system has changed completely. Uh, and one good thing to be exposed to all of that in the U.S. is that we all have alternatives. I mean, if I don't like what happens on Instagram, I can go see another thing. There's not that much diversity in a closed country like Iran. And if the actors of civil society are busy doing second job and third jobs, and they're only thinking about the bread, what are they going to do? Um, so, yeah, it is very important. Mm-hmm. Because it's important and because people have gone to this point, the idea is that, well, probably sanction was a good thing because, look, people are angry under the street and that might actually change their government. I, I strongly disagree with that because I think if, this, if there was enough of uh, bread and food on people's table that the civil society could flourish not only we would be on the street but we would be on the street with this peace of mind that probably the government that comes afterwards is a good government because there's this thinking and these demands Mm -hmm. behind it and that's not the case right now it's mayhem it's chaos we are happy that there is a change but no one knows what this change is going to bring because we don't know who we are anymore (laughs) Building on on that
1: question from Jay, like, so Masa Amini, she was Kurdish. And I'm wondering, you know, does that matter? Like, we're talking about a minority group in, like, a very economically deprived region of the country. Um, Does that play into this? Like, how do, you know, sort of, like, non-Kurdish Iranians feel about Kurds? Like, is that a thing that's been articulated in this protest movement?
2: Yeah, so... as they say, the Kurdish problem, and because they say it's a <laughs> Kurdish problem, I wouldn't say it. The Kurdish problem is really contested. The Kurds are really a people without a country. A mm-hmm. Part of them are in Iran. The other part is in North, like Kurdistan, the other part in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And in all three places, they've been under persecution, especially in Iran. Um, yeah. The number of uh, political prisoners from Kurdistan is much, much, much higher than the rest of the country. Uh, and I'm one of those people who would say, fuck with borders. If it's if like separating the country and making a Kurdistan as a country is a better option, if it's a better option, which I cannot tell, is uh, is a good thing for courts. Yeah, for sure. Uh, she wasn't arrested as a Kurdish woman. Yeah. But the idea is that because she was Kurdish, probably she got worse treatment at the back of the van. Obviously, the result says that. And it's also very possible that she that things got physical because she resisted or she responded back. Mm. At least that's our idea of a Kurdish woman. Kurdish woman are extremely, (laughs) yeah, courageous. This is a stereotype, but I'm very comfortable with it. (laughs) (laughs) The hot Kurdish lady officers. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, uh, the fact that she was Kurdish matters in the sense that probably she resisted and probably things got physical because Mm -hmm. she resisted. Uh, and probably they assume there is the least price for like, um, abusing her, for kicking her, whatever. And they, they, yeah, they. Her the treatment that she got was worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, being court is definitely, it cannot not be important. But because they're also, I mean, as we're talking, there's this woman named Zainab Jadali who's been in prison, I think for the last 12 years. She has a number of chronic issues at this point. And the, uh, when you look at her case, the only reason that she's in prison uh, is to have a court, Kurdish woman in prison to show that, okay, if you do anything that could like mm. even remotely be called activism uh, for courts, this is how you're going to end up. And there, are, there have been a number of executions recently, uh, including Shirin Alam Huli, whose cases, I mean, every time I think about her, I just want to, I just want to cry honestly. Uh, so, yeah, it's important. I, I cannot say because of this and because of that. Unlike the case of Sheeran and the case of Zainab that you can pinpoint exactly this is the reason that this yeah. person is in prison. But it did play a role in one way or the other.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, you you mentioned that you f- you felt that, uh, that this was the first martyr of the. <laughs> women's uh, movement and the first woman who died for a gender cause. Now you're very, you said that many women have died for political causes before, right? Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, in what you wrote, you were, you know, you detailed a lot of those deaths and, you know, um, and, and killings. And what I, I just wanted to ask what you meant by that. Like, what is the distinction, right? Like, um, why, why is this different?
2: um so to be honest i said that to start a conversation just like the question you're asking right now because something is different now and this is what i see but the way to uh, like set up a criteria is just i mean we can every single one of us could have a criteria we could start by looking at it in a global context femicide is a problem everywhere people get killed for the mere reason that they're women and this is something that happens in the West, is whatever. Killing feminists is actually very, very rare. There are some cases in Mexico. There are some cases in um, Afghanistan, in Turkey. But it's not like an everyday thing that a feminist gets killed. And the reason is obvious. Feminists themselves have been extremely peaceful in the way that they're asked for demands. I mean, in the last 100 years, probably the most violent things that feminists have done is to burn their bras, and that obviously put the whole country on acid that, oh, my God, this group are so crazy. They burn their bras. Somehow that's worse than burning people's house, whatever. Or like dancing with this like colorful mask in their church. These are the, like the extent of the violence of feminist movement. Um, because of that, there hasn't been feminist killing in the sense that women and activists die for and get killed for For what they do, lots of indigenous women, for example, in Guatemala, recently 24 um human rights defender indigenous were killed, and a number of them are women. Mm. But people who are killed solely for a woman cause are are rare. And in that section, I was trying to argue that let's not forget that well uh while so many women have been killed for their political ideology, for their fate, for their ethnic region. This one woman died just for her hair cover. And this is just absurd in a level that at least I couldn't just put it uh, like in the category of all the other killings, because I felt this needs some sort of some sort of pause in the sense that this is a woman's cause, a scarf, and it's just such a pitiful demand. It's just a mm-hmm. scarf, and it wasn't. It wasn't like she, she had got naked or she had taken off her scarf altogether. She died for a piece of like like a hair, like a locks of hair that was showing in front of her scarf. Some there's something here, and maybe I'm not uh, like I haven't been able to put my finger on it, but uh, yeah, I do feel that the case of my and the fact that the people on on are on the street does show that uh it was mindless and senseless and absurd in a level that put a whole country on fire overnight
0: so i think right so the the resonance maybe even for some of these young people is just that like this is so insignificant right it is not in its way um a political act and that it is something that's relatable right like we're saying well some days maybe i didn't secure it correctly or whatever. And then now I'm going to die about it. And that, that is, that, that's somehow resonant in a different way.
2: Yeah. That's, that's a very good way to put it. I totally, I totally agree with you.
0: Well, you know, just, uh, my last question, at least, you know, I think Tammy has a couple more is just, you know, this image is so powerful, you know, and I don't, I've been thinking about the past day, which is that you have these young women or, you know, in some ways, young girls and, you know, a lot there, I think the image that will come out of it is these, you know, a lot of them are giving the middle finger to like photos of, yeah. uh, right? Or, um, and, or, and they're holding the hijab up in their hand as they've yeah. taken it off. And yeah. I think this is like, you know, I, I think about protest movements a lot, and this is the type of image that is like, make something global, right? Yeah. Like it, yeah. it, it takes it away from the specifics of the, because it's such a defiant, easily translatable image and that even though we want to always contextualize things within the specific spaces that they're in it's not how like international consciousness arises like they arise from these types of symbols right yeah. Yeah. um and you know like it does inspire like a deep emotional response i think in people like like what like i don't know like what like how, how has it affected you to see these these scenes and like what do you think you know what do you think those sort of impact of that might be like, not, not, not even like what's going to happen. But you know, like on, on the way that people go about their lives or think about their identity or themselves.
2: Yeah, they're extremely powerful, as you said, and I'm either crying or seeing nightmares or just uh, my response is not very honorable. I'm just all over the place. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mess. I've been a mess this past week. But to, to, to respond to your question, I think after this, no matter what happens, women own the street because they managed to use the streets to do something they wanted on the street in the public space that was supposed to be the playground of the government in the way they wanted and that's not nothing that's i mean the relationship with public space uh, is something that uh, all totalitarian regime paid specific attention to and iran has gone through a number of like generation of urban planning and the last one is the, the the thing that is dominant right now is to make sure all the streets are designed in a way that it would block the flow of people and would make uh, like gathering people or protest as difficult as right. possible. And these are the things that people are taking off. But regardless of all of that, I think women owned public space for the first time after 42 years, despite being back to the private over and over and over, despite hmm. the fact that there was this government who was like permanently, systematically trying to erase women from public space, and that is very important. And, just, and it's just so fun, and it's just so, I mean, I've been in this protest in mean, the smaller scale back when I was in Iran. They're extremely purifying, exhilarating, empowering. Uh, they do something on your body, and the next day you feel like, like you're a different person, like you have right. a level of power that you didn't have two days ago.
0: Yeah, yeah that's i think that's a i think that's a universal
2: yeah, thing yeah. Where
0: you're just you know going to that on the show we've always defended protests just for on those grounds more than anything Totally. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you meet people you know like you said the demands change you see more possibilities and um you know people always saying well it didn't result in any policy change it's like well i don't know you know like sometimes it, like, that is not the point. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to have these things so people can even see the possibility of mm-hmm. of what those changes might be.
2: Exactly. No, there is always a change. It might not become a news item because it's not palpable. I and mean, people don't care unless there's like a major change. But we have this inner joke. You probably remember this movie, analyze that. This guy's mourning the death of her mother or his i don't remember he he's more the therapist is mourning someone and he keeps saying this is a process this is a process so we keep telling ourselves democratization is a process and it's like a one milestone ahead we are one step ahead and every step ahead uh is irreversible and it changes things it changes people's relationship with themselves and with the government it makes the government even more illegitimate uh and these are important. But yeah, the change that we want to see might not come overnight. And nobody can tell, really. Yeah.
1: I think that's such a good place to leave off. I just hope that um, the crazy Western feminists don't get too excited about the iconography <laughs> of the veil being flown off, you know. But anyway, we have to uh, just make sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kiana, thank you so much for coming on the show. We yeah, thank so you. Much. This was wonderful. Of course. Thank you so much for
2: having me.
0: thanks for listening to our show uh if you'd like to support our show you can go to goodbye.substack.com or you can go to patreon.com slash Pod. your contributions do help um we'd like to thank our producer as always may shots and we would like to thank everyone who participates in the conversation in our discord um lot of great conversations always going on in there if you'd like to sort of see the inner workings of you know what we discuss and meet people who also think about them that's a great place to start oh yeah by the way congratulations to friend of the pod multiple pod uh he's been on (laughs) multiple times right (laughs) washu for his book stay true i think what like set a record this week for having the first cool Asian American book <laughs> launch party that I've ever seen. I did not go, but on Instagram it looked amazing, you know? Like it was like, are... it was
1: the hot event. They wrote it up in the New York Times, you know? <laughs> no, I don't know if
0: that makes it cool or not, you know, but I was just <laughs> like I was like, "Whoa. we who are really all these good people? at
1: being cool?"
0: I know, I know, I you know. know, he's, it's an enviable <laughs> thing, you know, it's like insane. I was, anyway, right. his, Tammy and I are doing an event with Wad, the only cool Asian person in America right now, <laughs> uh, at what, at NYU, at December NYU. 1st, one of the
1: theaters in NYU on December 1st,
0: yeah, right, and um, everyone should read his book, everyone should get his book, um, okay, all right, till next week, Tammy, hopefully he'll be, uh, like, in front of some more more I'll appealing appealing background you failed our room raider every single week <laughs> for the past like six months or I'm
1: going surfing like. again for the rest oh. of the
0: week great 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 <laughs> um, you can update us on that update then. all right all right thanks Tammy. bye